Our Father, as we approach this subject of wisdom today, uh, we know that you have promised that you give wisdom to those who ask, and so we would ask that you would help us to understand uh, from your word what it means to fear God and to uh, therefore have wisdom for life, and we pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Have a seat. Uh, preaching in a new pulpit is a little bit like driving a, a car for a first time. You've got to figure out where everything is. I don't know if you all have ever seen this pulpit, but there's this hole here. And uh, I've been looking all week for paper that fits in there, and there is none in the office. So I came up here last week, and I wanted to see what, what William does. And uh, he sticks an iPad in here, I guess, so that he can set his notes on top of that and make it flat across there. Um, I, I am a, I'm definitely not a person who embraces new things quickly. I, I like to read books with paper and covers on them. I, I have embraced the internet but I hate it when they change my websites. I, you know, I, I, the, the website update, uh, ESPN.com just recently updated their website. I have no idea what's going on there. And frankly, I thought Windows 95 was fine, and I thought they could have just <laughs> left it like that, and, and that would have been good. Um, in the same way, though, that, that it's good to try new things, and I'm working on that, you know, they... William mentioned last week they got me a Mac, and uh, I don't know what to do with that thing, but I'm going to figure it out. Uh, in, in the same way that it would be foolish to never try anything new, it is also foolish to dismiss old ways just because they're old. And so today we're introducing a new series from the book of Proverbs, and we're calling it Wisdom for Life. And the world of technology may change very quickly, but when it comes to wisdom, we start all the way back at creation with the Creator who spoke words of wisdom to the first man and woman about how to live in the world that He created. And in thousands of years of human existence, uh, it is still good for us to return to the words of the Creator because wisdom hasn't changed. Now, uh, one of the things that I want to impress upon you this morning, and I think will be uh, continually communicated throughout this series, is that true wisdom does not exist in an ivory tower. Okay? To, to be wise, you do not need to grow a beard and, and quit your job and go sit under a tree and cross your legs and just think all the time. True wisdom is very practical, and I, I know that it's going to be the heart of everybody who brings uh, any kind of message from the book of Proverbs to, to make sure you understand that these are things that need to, to leave this building and go out with us on Monday morning. So today, I've got two things that I need to accomplish, okay? The first is I'm going to introduce the book of Proverbs, and I'm just going to say a few things that I hope will help you be able to interpret the book. And then after that, we're going to dig into Proverbs 1-7, which I think is the theme of the book. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And we're going to talk about that for sort of the second part of our time together this morning. My history with Proverbs 
started sometime in middle school. Maybe you had the same experience. Somebody came to me and said, hey, you should read a Proverbs every day because there's 31 Proverbs and there's 31 days. And so I did that for a little while. And honestly, as I've walked with Christ through the years, I've actually at times thought, you know, everybody seems to think that Proverbs is, is you know, so insightful, but there are some Proverbs that I don't really know what's going on, okay? And so I, I want to, as, as we do this little introduction this morning, our, our hope, my hope, is just to point out some things that I've learned that I hope may help you understand what's going on in the Proverbs, just some basics here. Uh, first of all, let me just tell you a little about who wrote the book of Proverbs. Uh, most of the Proverbs are said to be Proverbs of Solomon, or Shlomo in the Hebrew. Uh, Proverbs 1.1, Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Uh, Proverbs 10.1, Proverbs of Solomon. Proverbs 25.1, these are the Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied. And then there's three sections at the end. There's the, the, the wisdom of Agur, the wisdom of Lemuel, and then an acrostic poem that talks about a godly woman at the very end of the book. Okay, so here's what I just want to say about that. It's safe for us to say that uh, Solomon is the chief author, uh, but he's not the exclusive author because there is some other Proverbs in there. And then I think we can also say this. Most of these are sayings that were collected by Solomon during his reign, but at some point, uh, uh, several hundred years later, King Hezekiah and his men gathered some more Proverbs from Solomon and put them into the book that we have as well, okay? So out of that, then, let's ask the question, why did Solomon put these sayings together? Why did he gather up these Proverbs? And the answer is that this is a wisdom curriculum designed to teach, to instruct young people for life and leadership, okay? Let me just read to you uh, from the introduction to the book, uh, beginning in verse 2 to know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge, and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wisdom. To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And as I said earlier, I think that last, that verse 7 there is what holds the whole book together, but we'll, we'll get to that in just a few minutes, okay? All right, the second thing by way of introduction I want to mention to you this morning is just to sort of ask the question, how do I interpret the book of Proverbs? And I'm just going to make a few suggestions here that might make it easier. If you've never heard of Proverbs, if you're here today and you've never read a single proverb from the book, you probably would recognize some of what you find there. A dog returns to his vomit. Pride goes before the fall. Spare the rod, spoil the child. Okay? The point of all of these common, familiar sayings is that there is this nugget of truth that sticks in the mind. Okay? So, which one sticks in your head better? Let's just do a little test here. The incorrigible nature of fools makes them stubbornly inflexible so that they keep returning to their excessive indulgences in a revolting way. Or a dog returns to his vomit. See? It just sort of rolls out a little better than the first one. 
All right, so when we deal with the book of Proverbs, I'm sorry to say we have to talk for just a moment about the type of literature we're dealing with. Now, before you glaze over, uh, let me just say we're going we're gonna to cover this quickly and then we're going to move on, all right? But the word we have to talk about is genre, okay? There it is. See, I'm trying, I'm trying, to, trying to change your associations. So when we talk about genre, even the word, it's not even a nice word, genre. The book of Proverbs is a book of poetry, okay? And this is absolutely critical for you to keep in mind when you are reading the book because we read, and, and, and most of you do this without even knowing that you're doing this, but we read different types of literature differently. So when you read, Georgia is a state in the southern United States. It was established in 1732, the last of the original 13 colonies. You understand that we're, that's, a, that's a, a statement of history, okay? But when you read one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish, black fish, blue fish, old fish, new fish, the one has a little star, this one has a little car, say what a lot of fish they are. You don't assume that's coming from a biology textbook, right? You know that there's something different uh, about that statement, okay? And so we know this, but the Bible is made up of 66 different books containing several different literary genres. There's epistle, there's poetry, there's narrative. I remember when somebody told me, I don't know why this sticks out in my mind, but you know, you hear about the epistles of Paul, and I was just a little kid, and I didn't really know what epistle meant. And then at some point, somebody was like, they're letters. I was like, oh, it's a letter. And I read it differently after that because I realized that it, it was a letter from somebody to somebody else, okay? So those little things help us to read the Bible differently. Okay, I want to touch on one point then uh, of, of poetry, and that is this, this uh, issue of, of parallelism, okay? Uh, because that's something that happens a lot in the book of Proverbs. I, sadly, in my opinion, a, po a poem should rhyme. If it doesn't rhyme, it's not a poem. Uh, but a lot of different types of poems uh, don't rhyme, okay? So uh, like haikus, remember haikus? Five, five syllables, seven syllables, five syllables, and that's a poem, all right? In Hebrew, uh, it doesn't really rhyme either. And so the way that you identify Hebrew poetry has more to do with how the poet is, is laying it out, um, and the way that he's arranging uh, the different statements. So in parallelism, by the way, my dad was here last night, and after I, we went to dinner, and he said, after you were done with that thing on parallelism, I did not understand that. So I went home, I tried to like fill this in just a little bit, uh, but the point of parallelism is that there are two lines, and that you're supposed to sort of take those two lines together. Okay, so synonymous parallelism. I'll just give you a few examples here. Synonymous parallelism, the second line repeats the, the, the thought of the first line and adds to it, okay? So an evildoer listens to wicked lips and a liar gives ear to a mischievous tongue, okay? So that's, that's uh, synonymous parallelism, one statement building on the other statement, okay? Then there's antithetical parallelism, and this is the most common form of parallelism that you'll find in Hebrew poetry. And this is where the second line contrasts with the first line, usually like using like the word but, okay? So a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother, all right? And then one more I want to mention, uh, just because this is a fun verse. 
uh, a funny verse, uh, is emblematic parallelism, okay? And so in, the one line is figurative, and the other line is literal. So like a gold ring and a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. Emblematic <laughs> parallelism, all right? It's, it's in the Bible, so... All right, so let me just say this. This is what makes it poetry, okay? This parallelism is part of what makes it poetry. And so we're trying to understand what Solomon is saying using his different uh, poetic devices. All right, I want to mention this too. You've probably read Proverbs 26, 4 and 5, okay? This is a tricky verse. It, it goes like this. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Okay, what's going on there? Which is it? Should I answer a fool according to his folly, or should I not answer a fool according to his folly? And the answer is yes. Uh, I, I, what Solomon is doing here, and we do this too, okay? This is a general statement, okay? So we would say, uh, I, like, I might would tell my kids, okay? Look before you leap, all right, which is really good advice if you're, like, thinking about eloping, okay? Look before you leap, all right? So that's on the one hand. But then another thing we might say to our kids is, he who hesitates is lost, all right? Which is good advice if you're, like, in a pinata thing. Well, you're hitting a pinata, you know? You got to get in there quick, all right? So, so both of those are, are different things, and they say two different things, but they have truth, and they apply in different situations. Okay, so here we go. Proverbs are to be memorized. Proverbs are to be pondered, but they're not necessarily to be applied with every, uh, to every situation, every time, without qualification. Uh, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. That in general, that is true. But are there cases where godly parents raise children who rebel? Yes. Are there children who have been raised in absolute godless homes who are now devoted followers of Jesus Christ? Yes. So this is a good example. It's a pithy principle to be pondered, but not a precious promise. Like, see what I did there? Uh, all right. And then finally, uh, the Proverbs teach wisdom but they also require wisdom. And you need to be careful with Proverbs. Solomon says, like a lame man's legs which hang useless is a proverb in the mouth of a fool. All right? So a misused proverb can actually do a lot of harm. If your friend comes to you and is having a really difficult time, it's probably not a good time for you to whip out Proverbs 12.21, which says, no ill befalls the righteous, but the wicked are filled with trouble. Not good counsel, okay? All right, so we'll give, we'll give Solomon the last word on this, and then we'll turn to the fear of the Lord. Solomon says, like a thorn that goes up into the hand of a drunkard is a proverb in the mouth of a fool, okay? So, so there's some, uh, some helpful uh, points on understanding Proverbs, but let's, let's turn now to the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge uh, in Proverbs 1.7. Actually, over in Proverbs 9.10, Solomon says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, which is probably the more familiar form of that verse. And then again in Proverbs 31, speaking of the godly woman, 
Solomon says, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Okay, interestingly, I think, hopefully you do too, uh, the book of Proverbs is laid out. You may have noticed, you get to chapter 9. At the end of chapter 9, it changes and it becomes sort of random. It just general statements, okay? Uh, and so I think, and I don't think this is a mistake, Solomon laid out his, his book so that it begins with the fear of the Lord, and then that section at, at Proverbs 9, which obviously changes the type of, uh, of uh, uh, how he's writing, he states the fear of the Lord there again, and then he closes with the fear of the Lord regarding a godly wife. Okay, I don't think that's by accident, and I think that Solomon is trying to tell us that the foundation of this book is the fear of the Lord. Now, let's consider what Solomon is actually saying. If you don't fear the Lord, you don't have knowledge, okay? If you don't fear the Lord, you don't have wisdom, all right? So let's think about what that means then for the hallowed halls of university education. And this is what's true. That verse means that the lady or the man who is cleaning up, who is sweeping the halls at Harvard University, who fears the Lord, has more knowledge and is wiser than the most tenured professor who is there who does not fear the Lord. That, this is what that means. This, this needs to take our understanding of what it means to be wise and smart and educated and just flip it on its head. All right, that, That's what Solomon is doing here. Now, please, do not hear this as anti-intellectualism or anti-education. We are not checking our brains at the door to believe this, okay? Solomon was the wisest man who lived, all right? So Solomon is a wise man. The fear of the Lord is actually pro-intellect because it is God who ordained it as a starting place for human thinking. All right, so keep that in mind as we go through this, all right? Now, let me just mention, I want to just mention three things that Solomon does not say here because they're things that I think a lot of people think when it comes to knowledge and wisdom. First of all, he does not say that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of religious knowledge, okay? So there is no separation here. We are not here today to consider the fear of the Lord and grow stronger in religious knowledge and then go out from here tomorrow and get about the work of the real facts, all right? That is not the way this works. This is comprehensive. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all knowledge, all wisdom. Secondly, and I just have to throw this in here because this is such a uh, common thought these days, he does not say that money is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom because to talk to a lot of people today, they would say that, well, what we need in order to have more knowledge and wisdom is to throw more money at it. We need to throw more money at educating people, okay? And here's my point. This is, all, this is the only, I don't need to get into that discussion. But let me just say this, okay? The problem with wisdom in our society is not a financial one. It's a spiritual one. The problem is that we don't fear God, okay? That is the problem. And then third, Solomon does not say to know thyself is the beginning of wisdom. Socrates said that. And Socrates was wrong, all right? We can't know ourselves unless we know the fear of the Lord, all right? So if you want to know yourself first, you don't know anything. But if you want to know God, if you want to fear God, then you'll know yourself, all right? Okay, and then one final thought here. This is not about winning an argument. This is not about putting the smackdown on somebody in a really good apologetics debate. 
What we're talking about here is the well-lived Christian life under the lordship of Christ. That's what we're trying to understand. As we study Proverbs over this summer, we're trying to look at the well-lived Christian life. Biblical wisdom is skillful living under the word of God, all right? That's what we're going for here. All right, so let's break down this statement. We're, uh, we're, I'm just going to, I got two simple outline points this morning. We're going to see that Solomon directs us to a simple person, a specific person, and then he exhorts us to a specific response. So let's, let's see this specific person uh, to whom uh, Solomon directs us, all right? If you have your Bible in front of you, you may notice, and this, this is going to be true, I think, in most versions of the Bible, uh, the word LORD is written in all caps. It's all little, little capitalized letters there. And there are other Hebrew words that are translated LORD. Adonai is translated LORD, okay? But this is a different word than that. This is the word Yahweh, which is the name of God, all right? Exodus 3 is a great passage. It's the burning bush passage. Moses is out in the field. He's pasturing his father-in-law's flocks. God comes to him and deputizes him to be the one who's going to lead Israel out of Egypt. And Moses isn't really up for the task. He says, I don't know if I can do this. And he, has, he says this interesting thing there. He says, well, what is your name? What should I tell them is your name when they ask me, who is this God who has sent me? And so God says to him in verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name and this is my memorial name to all generations. All right, you need to put on your like theological floaties here for a second because we're going to wade into just a little bit of deep water. All right, I won't take long with this. But in the Bible, the name of a person actually speaks of that person's nature, okay? Shlomo, Solomon's Hebrew name. It should sound like something. It sounds like shalom, all right, which means peace, okay? So David and Bathsheba named Shlomo that because they hoped he would be a person who would bring peace, okay? All right, so names mean a lot more in, in the Scripture sometimes than we think of that, okay? Yahweh means... I am the one who is, okay? I am the one who is. So God's name speaks of his eternal and unchanging nature, okay? If we were to take a name similar to this, if, if that were to be our name, our name would be, I am the one who began to exist, right? All right? God, I am that I am. Human beings... I am that began to exist, okay? So God's name is important, and God's name was very uh, sacred to the Jews. They wouldn't even say it, okay? Yahweh is like our best guess at how to pronounce it because nobody, nobody said it, okay? We don't know what the vowel, Hebrew doesn't have vowel pointings, but that's not, we don't know what the vowels were, okay? So, so this name was sacred to the Jews, and, and they wouldn't even speak it out of reverence. In John 8, uh, Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And when he saw it, he was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not even 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Do you remember what the Jews did? They picked up stones and they tried to stone him. Okay, they took that very, very seriously. They understood exactly who Jesus was claiming to be. So here's my point. Solomon is speaking of a specific person with a name. 
He is speaking of the God, a specific God, the God who does things in human history. And his name means, I am that I am, which means he does not change. He is the one about whom Hebrews says that he sent the Son. He he has spoken to us through the Son, the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Okay? So this is not just a small little... Solomon is not saying what you need is to have wisdom is to have a little religion in your life. That's not what he's saying. This is no little g God. Okay? If, if you ever get up there and you get to you know, accept a Grammy or a Tony or a People's Choice Award or one of those things, and you say, I just want to thank God, you know, eh, everybody will be happy for you. But you get up there and you say, I want to thank God. Jesus Christ. I want to thank the, the, the covenant-keeping God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and people. <gasps> people are going to be aghast because you're getting specific there. You're talking about a specific person, and that's what Solomon is doing. All right, one of the great passages in the Scripture that talks about who God is and our response to Him. I don't, I don't want you to turn there because I want to read it to you. It's found in Isaiah 6. And Many of you are probably familiar with it, but it's a great passage. Isaiah comes into the presence of the throne room of God. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. And with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And the one called out to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah cries out, woe is me. Uh, he, he says, in, 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 in my translation, he says, uh, I am ruined. In some translations, it may say, I am undone. Literally, what he is saying there is, I should cease to exist. I have come in contact with something that is other than I am, that is different than I am. And he responds in awe, and he responds in, in reverence. This is the response of a person who has seen this God, Yahweh, and it cannot be taken lightly. Which leads us then into the second point that I want to talk about this morning, which is Solomon directs us to a response to that specific God. Now, I've been working all week on this idea of the fear of the Lord. It's a hard term. People don't understand this word fear today. Maybe even some of you, maybe if you're here for the first time, maybe you're like, I don't even, what, I don't want to fear God isn't that like an Old Testament concept? Aren't we supposed to love? Isn't the New Testament love and the Old Testament about fear? And so I want to unpack that for you this morning. The, like, the best theological, maybe you've heard it before, definition we've got is reverential awe, okay? Uh, and, and I think that's good as, as far as it goes. But, but what is reverential awe? And, and the Bible consistently uses this concept of awe or awesomeness in relation to God. Awesome, awesome is another word that we've sort of ruined. You know, it, how, you know God, God, how is God awesome? And, you know, so is Guardians of the Galaxy. You know, like those two things don't, don't compute. We need, we need better separation. 
for our, for our words there, okay? Remember the old Rich Mullins chorus, our God is an awesome God? Awe is part of that response that Isaiah feels when he cries out, woe is me, all right? So in the scriptures, the sense of fear or awe of God, it's almost like a reflex response that people have. Think about every time in the scripture when somebody encounters the angel of the Lord or the risen, glorified Jesus Christ, even the disciples at the Mount of Transfiguration, people fall on their knees and they bow when they encounter God. Revelation 1, when when John sees uh, Christ on the Isle of Patmos, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Now, maybe some of you have already thought, doesn't John say, perfect love casts out all fear? And I think this little picture here of Jesus and John on the Isle of Patmos helps us understand what's going on there. Because just think about this with me. The fear of God drives John to his knees when he sees Jesus. I think one day we're going we're gonna to see God as he is. I mean, the Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. We're going to see and we're going to bow, okay? But the Bible also says, James says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up, okay? So this, if you don't get like a little bit tingly feeling about this, you know, you need to think about things because think about that. You're going to see God as he is. And then think about what it must have been like for John to, to have Christ put his hand on his shoulder and say, no, you, you can stand up. You, you can stand up. This perfect love does cast out all fear. And, and those two things are working together. And, and, and right now in our, in our humanness, in our fallenness, we don't always, we're not always able to put two and two together. And we just have to trust in, in, in what these things are and what they're saying. But I have no doubt that this idea of us as humans bowing our knees before Christ is exactly what Solomon means when he says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Start there. Start on your knees before God. And then you will know wisdom and you will know knowledge. All right, so then let's think too for just a second. How is this reverential awe different from being afraid? Because I think that fear that is being spoken of here is different from being afraid. And so as I've thought about it, I've thought, you know, there are things that, that scare me that are unpredictable. You know, natural disasters are unpredictable and they're scary. I will never forget the first time that I, I, I encountered an earthquake, you know. I, there, there's, I, I don't know how many of you have experienced an earthquake, but when that ground starts moving beneath your feet, that is a scary feeling, you know? And I'm like, everybody else in the room is just kind of like, ah, we've been through this before, you know? And I'm like running through all those, those safety things. Like, what am I supposed to stop, drop, and roll? No, that's not it. I, I'm going to go, I'm going to go, and I'm going to get, I'm going to get, I, I, you know, I, I went to a door frame, you know, because somebody told, I, think, I felt like that was, I had heard that one time that, that was what I was supposed to do. But that's a freaky feeling. Snakes, snakes are unpredictable to me. I don't know what they're going to do. I don't care if they're poisonous or not. They could kill me as far as I'm concerned. We drove past one the other day in the van, and my kids were like, oh, there was a snake. Let's go back and look at it. And I'm like, no, we're not going back. We're absolutely not going back. This, this van is not safe enough. All right, so then take that idea of unpredictability and think about the pagan and the Greek and the Roman gods, okay? They were unpredictable. 
You could, you know, Molech, the, the, the Bible talks about the god Molech. You could go and you could sacrifice your child to the god Molech and you still may not appease him. He still may strike you down. You could go and you could make your sacrifices to the fertility gods and you still may not have a good crop because they were unpredictable. Those were not covenant promises. Those were attempts to appease erratic, fickle gods. The God of the Bible, Yahweh, is not fickle. He is not erratic. He is not impulsive. His name is Yahweh. I am that I am. He is, his name implies that he is a covenant-keeping God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. You don't have to worry that he's going to change his mind. John says, confess your sins, and he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're never going to wake up and find that that has changed. No matter what gets whispered in your ear, God has promised that when you confess your sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And if you're doubting that, if you feel like you've gone too far this time and that you can't possibly come, come before, you're believing a lie. Because every single time, if you confess, he forgives and he cleanses. So as I said, as a preacher this week, I've been humbled by the opportunity to try to expound what it means to fear God, and coming up with this idea of reverential awe, I've come up with these two just sort of pictures, kind of unrelated and yet also related. The first is a king, thinking about that no one would dare approach a king in a casual way. Think about the kings in the scripture, Esther, you know, who comes, she has to wait for the king to, to put his scepter out so that she can speak. Nehemiah comes into the presence of a king and his face is downcast because he feels sorrow for what's going on back in Judah, and he worries that the king might not receive him because he has a downcast face. Okay, so, so coming before a king, before the majesty of a king is, is a scary thing, and yet think of the king's child. That king is still king, and he is still majestic. But who would come into the presence of a king in the middle of the night with, with some seemingly, you know, small problem, like I had a nightmare or I need a drink of water, and yet the king's child walks in and finds that his dad, who is also the king, swoops him up in his arms and comforts him, gets him what he needs. It's, it's, an, it's an imperfect illustration, but it gets us down the road, I think, to the reverential awe and this relationship that we have with this God of the universe. The second comes from C.S. Lewis. You can't talk about the fear of the Lord, I think, and not bring up the conversation of the Pevensey children with the beavers on the subject of Aslan. It's this little conversation. So Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nerveless, nervous meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Here's what I think, here's what I want to think about that. You know, being in the presence of Almighty God, it, it makes us uncomfortable, okay? In the same way as if we were in a room with a lion, okay? And it doesn't matter how much somebody tells me, it's a, that's my pet lion, it's a good lion, he's good. I mean, that's okay, but I'm uncomfortable in the presence of that lion, okay? So it is with us. And that's why I think it's important for us to remember that God never changes. He is good. 
He makes us uncomfortable. Isaiah, in his presence, was uncomfortable. John, in his presence, was uncomfortable. But he's good, and he keeps his promises. He's a covenant-keeping God, and his name is Yahweh. And therein lies the comfort. One thing real quick that I've noticed as I've studied the fear of the Lord this week, it's kind of counterintuitive. In the scripture, by the way, I, Bill told me I was going to be preaching on this like four weeks ago, and I, I've been kind of working on it along. And as I read the scripture, the fear of the Lord is everywhere in the scripture. This phrase, the fear of the Lord, is everywhere, but it is always associated with the righteous. Okay? It is the righteous who fear God. In fact, the unrighteous will be judged because they don't fear God. Paul in, in Romans 3:18 says, There is no fear of God before their eyes, as he sort of finishes that airtight case against human beings apart from Christ, okay? So, to be a God-fearer in the Scriptures is to be a Christian. Just go home. Do a little little work yourself. Just Google the fear of the Lord, the fear of God, and and look at some of the passages that come up there. You'll find some stunning insights into what it means to follow Christ, to love God, to repent, all of those things. And there's so much more that I could say about knowledge and wisdom and how it relates to the fear of the Lord, okay? But uh, that's going to be an ongoing subject as we go through this whole series. We're going to talk about wisdom and, and just kind of keep in mind this fear of the Lord as a foundation all the way through as we talk about Proverbs this summer. But let me close with just three points of application uh, to leave you with uh, as, as, we, as we go out of here this morning. And the first one is this. The fear of the Lord directs us to Christ. The fear of the Lord directs us to Christ. Because this is the bottom line. To see the Lord as He is in His holiness. And to see ourselves as we are in our sinfulness. And then to bow the knee before that God and to cry out to Him for mercy. That is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. That is what it means to be saved. That is what it means to worship. We have a great opportunity. I love, we, we, we get to like see God. We get to see God in the scripture this morning and we're going to get to sing afterwards and cry out to him and worship as a result of what we've heard. But I want to ask you this morning, do you remember a time? Do you remember that time when you first got that glimpse of God as he really is from the scriptures Do you remember when God's word suddenly began to be clear and you began to realize it was true? Because I do. I remember that. I was listening to a man preach on the Pharisees from the book of Mark, and all of a sudden, I realized I was a whitewashed tomb. Jesus is calling out the Pharisees for being whitewashed tombs, and I'm like, that's me. I am clean on the outside. I've been polished on the outside, but I am dead. I'm dead bones on the inside. And I went home that afternoon, and I'll tell you, I like nothing better for the last 25 years than to go home on Sunday afternoon and lay on the couch and nod out to sleep in and out and watch the golf tournament on TV. And that Sunday afternoon, I didn't want any part of it. I got alone in my bedroom with the Word of God, and all I could do was just sit there and drink in the Scriptures. Everything had changed. In light of who God is... I saw myself as I had never seen myself before, a sinner. And then there was the cross, and there was the resurrection, and and those were sweet days. I I cherish those those first days um, because I had grown up in the church, and I knew the Scriptures, but it all started to make sense in in a different light. 
at that time. So let me ask you this today. You know what it means to fear the Lord. Are you clear about who He is? And Isaiah got to go right into that uh, throne room of God and encounter God. But we, we, we do too, right here today, through His Word, as it's written down. We encounter God today through His Word. And when we do, that response should be the same. Woe is me, for I am undone. And then our cries for mercy are met with this revelation of a Redeemer who came to save us. All right? So the fear of the Lord directs us to Christ. Secondly, fear of the Lord keeps us in Christ. The fear of the Lord should stimulate us to holy living. Because if you've actually seen God for who He is, and you've seen sin for what it is, and you've seen your need for a Savior, then why would you go back to living and continuing into that sin that was once so destructive? If you're a Christian, then God is your Father. 1 Peter 1 says, If you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's de- deeds, con- conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile. The writer of Hebrews tells us, The Lord disciplines those He loves. So I'm just going to be frank with you this morning, because I, I, I think this is true, and I'm, I'm talking to myself here as well, because we all, we all forget, okay? If you ever sin thinking, you know what, I'll just go back and ask forgiveness later. I'll go ahead and do this thing. I'm really worked up. I'm just going to go ahead and have at it, and, and I'll go and ask forgiveness later. If you ever say that, you are not living in the fear of the Lord. If you can look at something on your computer screen that you know you shouldn't be looking at and think, eh, you're not living in the fear of the Lord. If you, if you can be fast and loose with your money at work or, or wherever else, you're not living in the fear of the Lord. Students, if you give in to peer pressure, compromise is born out of lack of faith in who God is. Because in that moment, you are fearing man and you are not fearing God. So the fear of the Lord should drive us to Christ. It should drive us back to Christ in confession. When we do sin and when we do realize that we've offended a holy God, then then it should drive us because I I should want to restore that relationship. I want my relationship with my Father in heaven restored. There's no worse lie than that lie that says, you've really done it now. Don't even bother confessing. That is a terrible lie. And we, we all believe it sometimes. Just put that out of your mind. And when you sin, run back to that God, the, the, the God that is revealed in the Scripture, and confess your sins. That's what the fear of the Lord should drive us to. Third, we need to be people who fan the flames of the fear of the Lord. Just get real practical. First of all, we need to pray. We need to pray that God would increase our fear of the Lord. The NIV translation of Psalm 8611 says, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. We could all do a lot worse than to go out of here today and begin each day this week praying, Lord, give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Like, just take away all the distractions so that I can fear you. That's the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. Secondly, we need to grow in the fear of the Lord by exposing ourselves to the Word of God. The more we read about God, the more we see who He is, the more likely we are to remember how great He is. 
and who he is and what our response to him should be. That's one of the reasons we want to do this, this class this summer, because what you guys need to know is that there's nothing I have said this morning that is any way like just because I've got some kind of pastoral credentials, okay? This word is accessible to everybody in this room who has the Holy Spirit, who illuminates it, and who teaches us, and, and you need to be able to read it and to understand it, because you can, and it will direct you to the fear of the Lord if you love it and if you cherish it. And then third, train our minds. We need to train our minds to think in terms of the fear of the Lord. We need to remember who God is. He is Yahweh. He is Jesus Christ, the Lord. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the covenant-keeping God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when we live thinking about the fear of the Lord... It's going to be obvious to the world around us because we're going to want to obey his commands and he commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves. So people are going to see that in us and it's going to begin to change you, to change how you live and how you behave and how you interact with your family and with your co-workers. So, may Community Bible Church become a body of believers who yearn to live more and more in the fear of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, great God, holy, holy God, would you increase our faith? Would you give us undivided hearts that we may fear your name? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way it reveals who you are. We thank you for the way it reveals Christ. God, you did not leave us in our sin. You did not leave us in our despair. God, you, you have met our every need spiritually. May we be people who see that, read it, embrace it, and live it. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.